Well, you don't have to turn there, but uh, in 2 Kings chapter 6, we're told of a time in the history of Israel when the king of Syria was trying to constantly destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. However, every time he tried, his plans were thwarted by the prophet Elisha. Elisha would warn the king of Israel, saying, do not go into such and such a place. If you go there, there'll there'll be an ambush waiting for you. And so time and time again, Israel was saved, and the king of Israel was saved as well. Well, eventually, the king of Syria finds out that it's Elisha who has been telling all of his uh, plans to the king of Israel. And so what he does is he sends a great army. We're told it's full of horses and chariots, a great army by night to the city of Dothan where Elisha lived, and he's going to destroy Elisha. Well, we're told that when the servant of Elisha rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? This poor guy wakes up in the morning, and the first thing he sees is an army surrounding a tiny town. What are we going to do? Says Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then he prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Well, the Lord not only delivered Elisha and his servant and the little city of Dothan, but he saved all of Israel that day as well. But as I had meditated on our text in Romans today, I think there's a similarity between Elisha's prayer, namely that his servant's eyes would be open to see the overwhelming forces of God uh, on their side, and Paul's purpose in our text today as well, namely that the eyes of the hearts of the Christians in Rome would be open to behold the overwhelming riches of the gospel and the overwhelming power of God at work in them for the sake of Jesus Christ. See, up to this point in Paul's gospel, he has been unpacking, in, uh, in the book of Romans, he's been unpacking the gospel. He starts in chapter 1 explaining um, the wrath of God coming against mankind because of man's depravity. In chapter 2, he explains that it's not just the pagan Gentiles that are in sin, but everyone, even the Jews that have the law. And therefore, he concludes in chapter 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so then in chapter 4, he explains that we now have peace with God, having been justified through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is possible because chapter 5, we're now united to Christ, the second Adam. The first Adam, Adam, only brought us death and condemnation, but the second Adam brings us life and righteousness, justification. Then he moves on to explain that we have been regenerated. We are born again. We are no longer alive to sin. Sin will no longer reign over us. Why? Because chapter 7, we're no longer under the law as a covenant of works, but we're under grace. 
And so he gets to chapter 8 and he explains that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and we have the Spirit of God that he calls the Spirit of Adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And as we await glory, as we await glorification, the Spirit comforts us in our weaknesses as we groan waiting for the new creation and to be glorified. He summarizes all this. He wraps it all up in verse 29. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So having unfolded the gospel, Paul gets to our text now. And he's going to go on. We're about halfway through the book of Romans. He's going to go on to explain more. But before he does, it's as though he stops. And he looks back at everything he said, and he surveys it, and then he asks the Christians in Rome, what then shall we say to these things? If this is true, what does that mean? He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things? Why do you think Paul feels the need to ask that at this time in his letter? Why not in chapter 12? Why not in chapter 5? Well, I think Paul, having served for decades at this point in his life as a pastor and a missionary, knows that even after having expounded the gospel in nearly eight chapters, he knows that there are still people in Rome, perhaps people in here today, who, overwhelmed by the weight of the guilt of their sin, past or present, or uh, the pressures of the world on the outside, They do not see the victory of God. Rather, they feel disconnected from God's love. Like Elisha's servant, they find themselves looking at God saying, Alas, my God, what shall we do? Where are you, God? Why didn't you show up when I needed you to show up? I'm surrounded right now. So Paul is going to try to open the eyes of those Christians and ours today, to see that because of the overwhelming riches of the gospel, we can have a bold confidence in God's love for us. Now, I specifically use the word bold there because I think that sadly, some believers think it's a mark of piety to doubt God's love for them. I think uh, they think it's it shows a sense of reverence for God's holiness and a real understanding uh, of their own sinfulness. And while there is a boldness that stems from looking at yourself, thinking, well, of course God loves me, right? I'm, I'm, have you met me? I'm pretty good. There's another kind of boldness. A boldness that comes from faith, not in oneself, but in the amazing promises of the gospel. There's an old hymn that says, Faith, mighty faith, the promise sees and looks to that alone, laughs at impossibilities and says, it shall be done. That 
bold confidence in God's love, looks at anything that would attempt to separate it from Christ, to sever it from the promises of the gospel, and laughs at it, not because of itself, but because of the righteousness of Jesus and his atoning work on the cross. I ask you, do you have that kind of bold confidence in God's love for you this morning? Or do you find yourself as I often find myself, not laughing in faith at the forces arrayed against me, but laughing in doubt and cynicism at the promises of God. Like Sarah, laughing at the promise of God that she would give birth in old age. Maybe you find yourself there. Well, if you do, let's turn to our text now to learn how the gospel can give us this bold confidence in God's love this morning. There are two specific things that Paul will address here that can cause us to doubt God's love for us. The first is the guilt that the believer can experience from past or present sin. And the second is the pressures of living in a fallen world that is hostile to Christ. So my first point is that because no one in the universe can bring a charge against us, we can have a bold confidence in God's love for us. Look again at verse 33. Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Now, Scripture is very clear that at one time, everyone in this room was separated from God because of their sin. In fact, there was enmity between us. We were the objects of his righteous wrath, not the objects of his love. But in the gospel, God took the initiative to repair this breached relationship. And even while you and I were sinners, we're still enemies of God, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. So much so that at one time, while we were separated from Christ, now, in Christ Jesus, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are no longer enemies of Christ, but sons and daughters in the family of God. And yet, it can be very easy to know that in your head and to grab a hold of it in your heart. Paul asks two rhetorical questions. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect and who is to condemn? Now, those questions are rhetorical, meaning Paul's intended answer is no one can. No one can ultimately bring a charge that will successfully condemn a Christian. However, experience in the word of God tells us that there are persons and things that would try to condemn you and I this very morning. For example, we are told in Revelation 12, verse 10, that Satan accuses Christians day and night before our God, pointing to our sin. While you were sleeping last night, Satan was pointing out your sin before God. While we're all here this very morning, he's pointing out our sin before God. Also, this world can bring charges against us, perhaps 
perhaps with cause or without cause. They can say, I know who you are. I know who you were, more importantly. I know the people you've burned. I know the mean things you've done. And you think there will be forgiveness for a person like you? I don't think so. But I think the heaviest condemnation that you and I will experience comes not from without, but from within. The Apostle John explains in 1 John 3.20 that even our own heart can betray us and cause us to take our eyes off of our Lord and His finished work on the cross and just to spectate inwardly where all we find is our sin. You know, you sin again for the millionth time. You confessed it to friends, to your spouse. You thought you were good and you were really serious and you fell again. And oh, the condemnation from that. You don't even want to get up to try to fight that sin anymore. You, like Peter, you just want to say, depart depart from me for I am a sinful man, Lord. Well, what is Paul's answer to our would-be accusers? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In other words, Paul paints us a picture of a scene of a heavenly courtroom. At the other table, you have the prosecution, the three attorneys. You have Satan, the world, and even our own hearts. And they are making a stellar case against us. They are laying out item after evidence, after evidence, after evidence, pointing to our sin and demanding that if the judge is just and if he is a friend of law, he must condemn us. But overseeing our case is a merciful God of love. And sitting beside, beside us as our defense counsel, as our attorney, is Jesus Christ himself. And all he has to do is point to the evidence of his bloody cross, and the judge says, not guilty. And the prosecution can say, your honor, but no, how can you? And he says, not guilty. Case closed. No condemnation for him or her. In our court system, if one party is dissatisfied with the judge's ruling, they can appeal their case, right? They can go to a higher court. If they're still dissatisfied, they can go to a higher court, all the way to the Supreme Court. But if their case is thrown out there, there's no one that they can appeal to. They just have to live with it, basically, and move on. Well, Christian, is there any higher court than God's heavenly courtroom to which your accusers might appeal? No. Is there any judge greater than God who has justified you? No. Is there any greater advocate than the spotless Son of God who has purchased you? Absolutely not. Is there any greater testimony and evidence than Christ's bloody cross where your sin was nailed? None. Your guilt 
and shame and sin cannot separate you from the love of God. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is the second book at the end, right before Malachi. I'm going to look at Zechariah chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1. At this point in Zechariah, uh, the people of Judah have come back from captivity in Babylon. The new temple has been built, and Joshua, uh, the son of um, Josedek, not the Joshua from the book of Joshua, a different one, has been declared to be high priest in the temple. And Zechariah is given a vision of God, from God, of the heavenly courtroom in which Joshua the high priest is on trial. Look at verse 1. He says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. What a beautiful picture of our justification. Like Joshua, you and I were covered in the filthy, filthy rags of our sin. And Satan stood there accusing us before God. But how does God respond to Satan? He rebukes him. Isn't it great to know that of all the people that can rebuke someone, God will rebuke someone for you? He rebukes Satan. He says, the Lord rebuke you. And the Lord rebukes anyone that would seek to bring condemnation on any of his justified children. He says, is this not one of my children that I have plucked from the, the wrath of my, or the fire of my wrath? And just as the angel commanded that Joshua's filthy garments be removed from him, so also Christ has removed your sin from you. And just as Joshua was clothed with pure vestments and a clean turban, so also you and I are clothed this very morning with the pure robe of Christ's righteousness and a clean turban of his perfect obedience to the law of God. So if this morning the guilt of your sin is heavy upon you, then take Martin Luther's advice. If you're ever struggling with guilt, just read Martin Luther. He says, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. You tell that. Nothing in this universe can bring a charge against you. 
and God's love towards you is as secure as the righteousness of Jesus. How, how righteous is Jesus? He's as, he's as righteous as it gets. That's how secure your salvation is. And when you give in to temptation again, and you fall for the millionth time, don't run away in your shame and guilt from the presence of God, but run boldly into his presence in faith and repentance. And then get back up and fight your sin again. But guilt from sin, as we'll see, is not the only thing that can cause us to doubt God's love for us. Also, the pressures of living in a fallen, sinful world can cause us to doubt as well. Therefore, Paul, in verses 35 through 36, now turns his attention to show us that we can also have a bold confidence in the love of God for us because nothing in this fallen universe can triumph over us. He asks in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Notice the first two things, tribulation and distress. Kind of just general terms for being afflicted, right? Through going through the hard times in life. Next, persecution. Specifically, when the world persecutes believers for the sake of Christ and His gospel and for righteousness' sake. Next, famine. Or we might say all kinds of natural disasters. like Tornadoes. Earthquakes. Mudslides. Fire. All kinds of things that can happen. Next, nakedness, referring to dire poverty, or in our day, not knowing if the check you wrote for rent is going to go through the next day, not knowing how you're going to pay your bills that month. Lastly, he says danger or sword, probably not just uh, the danger that comes from persecution, but just the general threat of violence that exists in the world, right? You just turn on the evening news and we live in a violent world. Paul gives us a pretty wide-ranging list of the afflictions that can befall believers in this life. Well, if those are the kinds of things that can befall us, Paul in verse 36 shows the intensity or the level on which we can experience those things. Quoting Psalm 44, he says, As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 44. Let's just look at the surrounding context and read a bit more of that. Oftentimes when New, Test- New Testament writers quote a verse, uh, Oftentimes they have a whole passage in mind. They didn't have chapter and verse back then. Let's look at Psalm 44, verses 9 through 14, just the kind of surrounding context. It says, But you, speaking of God, have rejected us 
and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. By quoting that, Paul's saying that that's how you and I can feel in this lifetime. Utterly rejected and abandoned by God. Absolutely without hope at times. Have you ever felt that before? God's turned his back on you? Not other believers. He loves them more than you, but you, he's willing to turn his back on, right? Perhaps you cry out, where are you in this, God? I lift, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? I don't see him coming. Well, if these are the kinds of things that we can go through, and we know that the pain that they can cause is extremely severe at times, what's the remedy? Can these things separate us from the love of God? Paul answers in verse 37 with a resounding no. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Did you catch that? In all these things? Paul says that the Christian does not have an overwhelming victory because they escape their circumstances, but by persevering and overcoming through them in all these things. That is entirely opposed to worldly wisdom. The unbeliever looks at that and says, if that's what you call victory, thank you very much. I have enough of my own problems without your victorious God sharing his victory with me. Okay? That's, that's not going to do it for me. But Paul says, no. Even in these things, we are not simply conquerors. We are more than conquerors. You want to know what this kind of conquering looks like? I'm going to read to you part of a letter that I came upon a while ago. It was written by um, a reformer named Guido de Bray, or Guy de Bray. Uh, he actually wrote the Belgic Confession. Um, he had been arrested by forces that were opposed to the Reformation, and he was waiting execution. And so he wrote a letter to his wife. It was the last, wrote, last thing she ever heard from him. Uh, to console her and to encourage her in the Lord. And it is a powerful picture of what a Christian conquering looks like. That's what he wrote. I am practicing now what I have preached to others. And I must confess that when I preached, I would speak about the things I am actually experiencing now as a blind man speaks of color. Since I was taken prisoner, I have profited more and learned more than during all the rest of my life. I am in a very good school. The Holy Spirit inspires me continually and teaches me how to use the weapons in this combat. On the other side is Satan, the adversary of all children of God, 
He is like a boisterous roaring lion. He constantly surrounds me and seeks to wound me. But he who has said, fear not, for I have overcome the world, makes me victorious. And already I see that the Lord puts Satan under my feet, and I feel the power of God perfected in my weakness. Our Lord permits me, on the one hand, to feel the weakness, to feel my weakness and my smallness, that I am but a small vessel on earth, very fragile, to the end that he would humble me so that all the glory of the victory may be given to him. On the other hand, he fortifies me and consoles me in an unbelievable way. And shortly after, he was executed. That's what it looks like to be more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. This is the victory that we have, that not even death can stop us. It couldn't stop Christ, and we're in Christ, and it can't stop us. Nothing can. Nothing can stop the believer at all. Now, make no mistake, brothers and sisters, in this life, you and I will be slaughtered like sheep, and it will be a slaughter at times. But we are not sheep without a shepherd. And our shepherd loves us, so much so that he died for his flock. And even as we are being slaughtered, we can cry out, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever as you're being slaughtered. That's the victory we have. And the reason we have this victory is because Christ is victorious and he shares it with us. Notice that Paul says we are more than conquerors through him. Through Christ is how we are conquerors. Christ, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Therefore, Isaiah 53 says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. For God has divided him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And John in Revelation writes, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, completely destroyed his enemies. And we partake in that victory of victories this morning. Therefore, Paul concludes in verse 38, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing you can think of that's outside of that. He said, anything else in all creation. There's nothing you can think of outside of that. What is it this morning that seems to be conquering you? Seems to be slaughtering you? Is it sickness? Disease? Temptation and sin? Depression? Whatever it is, God will give you just the right amount of strength that you need through His Holy Spirit to persevere and push through. Jesus said, Lord, give us our daily bread. He didn't say, give us our week's supply of bread on Monday. And God is going to give you just the right amount that you need every day. Maybe not enough to see how you're going to make it through the week, but through that day, He will sustain you. You can say like David, for by you, God, I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. The Lord is your support and your helper. And nothing in this universe can overcome us in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we can have a bold confidence in God's love for us. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, if God be for you, who can be against you this morning? I pray that all of our eyes would be open to see the overwhelming power and riches, forces of God that are on our side. That we would see that there are more with us than, more, than with them. God loves you through His Son, Christ Jesus, and He has so perfectly designed your salvation that nothing, not your own sin, not the world, not the enemies, can throw off your salvation. Nothing can outsmart or outjuke God. Your salvation is secure. I pray that if you are having trouble grabbing a hold of that this morning, that you would let someone know. Receive prayer. Often, God strengthens His people through the prayers of His people. And I pray that you would do that. Don't uh, think you just have to sit there quietly like everything on the outside is going great while inside you're, you're in agony. Let someone know. Lastly, if you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins... Sadly, the Bible says that you are in fact separated from the love of God. Because of your sin, God as the holy righteous judge is not for you, actually against you. You have no defense counsel standing beside you, and you have an amazing prosecution against you. And the God of the universe is holy, and he will pronounce you guilty. And when the pressures of this world come crashing down on you, as they will eventually, there is no overwhelming victory for you, but only overwhelming defeat. But you're not without hope this morning. God, because of his unfathomable, unfathomable love towards sinners, sent his only son Jesus to pay the price for your sins by nailing him on a cross in your place that you might receive forgiveness and eternal life and that nothing might ever separate you from his love again. You can experience his love this very morning by simply believing in your heart 
Some old Puritans describe faith as an empty hand. You can't receive something from someone if you have something else in your own hand. If you're trying to hold on to your own righteousness. Faith is just an empty hand that grabs hold of the promises of the gospel. That's all it is. And if you have faith in Christ Jesus this morning, then there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. The Bible says, All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and so will you if you call upon him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we're so weak, God. Lord, forgive us for so often, like the children of Israel, once we experience tribulation, saying, oh, that we could go back to Egypt, Lord. Oh, that our life was so much simpler before we were believers. We know, Lord, that you are zealous for the holiness of your children, and so you often bring us through very dark valleys. I pray, Lord, that even in those valleys, you would help us to shed our fears, to shed our sins, Lord, to shed our condemnation, that we would walk in bold faith in the light of your promises, God. I pray for anyone who feels utterly downcast beyond the reach of your grace, that they would know that grace extends infinitely to sinners, God. I pray, Lord, for anyone who feels like you are very mad at them this morning, that you love your other children, but you are very displeased with them, that they would know that you play no favorites. You play no favorites, God. Your son was your favorite, and you love us as you loved him. I pray for anyone under the crushing weight of this world, Lord. Oh, God, that you'd hold them in the midst of being crushed, Lord, that you would show them that you are sovereign, that you are working out all things uh, for their good and for your glory, and that they might know that through all this, Lord, you will bring them, and you will use this, God. We ask that you be with us now in the rest of this Lord's Day. You bless the fellowship, the small groups later, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.